you know, is journalism dying? Is it dead? No, but I think that we have got to disentangle journalism from the market. As large corporations and hedge funds dismantle legacy news outlets, treating them as line items on a balance sheet that can be cut to increase revenue, journalists lose their jobs and communities have fewer options they can turn to for local news. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Margo Seska is American University's first assistant professor of journalism, accountability, and democracy. Last week, her first book, Hedged, How Private Investment Funds Helped Destroy America's Newspapers and Undermine Democracy, and she's here to talk about it. Margo, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I say welcome back because you have been on this podcast before, but that time we were recording in a studio, and I'm not exactly sure what year that was, maybe 2019 or 2020. I wish you get this out of the way. You were my boss for a period of time when I taught podcasting in the weekend program at American University, right? That was a long time ago. Yeah, I think... That was a long time ago. I think... The last time I appeared on the program was way before 2019 because I remember it being a long time before COVID. You know, my memory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It probably was 2017. Anyway, we haven't spoken in a while. I was a benevolent ruler, if I remember. (laughs) You were. You were very patient in understanding that you gave people space, and I appreciated that. And You know, at the end of the day, I decided that this isn't for me. There's some people who are actually made to be teachers. I had a fine time, but, you know, onward and upward. Yeah, I think teaching is a lot harder than people think. I think a lot of journalists, you know, think that it'll be their next transition out of, like, after journalism, they'll just become teachers. Like, it must be an easy transition. And I think it's it's tougher than sometimes than people think. But I think that you handled it it well. Yeah. I don't know about that last class. I don't know what, how well they thought I handled it. Anyway, enough uh, enough of the nostalgia. See, so you wrote a book. This is your first book. Yes. Okay. Well, let me back up and, and actually ask you about your role at American University. How did this come about? Was this something that you had proposed, or is this something the school was thinking we need to have somebody do this? I am very lucky to teach and do research at American University because I work in the School of Communication that recognizes the importance of both the practice of investigative journalism, but also the study and the research of both journalism and communication in democratic society. And I was a former journalist. I was a local news reporter in both Connecticut and Florida before I earned my doctorate. So I have, you know, I brought a certain skill set into the School of Communication as a former practitioner, but I also have a doctorate in mass communication. So I do research in journalism. I do research in media and society. So, you know, I think for many positions in academia, you have to be able to, you know, kind of pick between, you know, whether you're going to just do specific practice you know, you see a lot of positions of, you know, professors of professional practice, or you see folks who just choose a very scholarly, you know, trajectory where they do write journal articles and 
so I, you know, have worked in the summers for the last, you know, I guess seven years with the nonprofit newsroom on campus, the investigative reporting workshop, which was founded, of course, by pioneer Chuck Lewis and is now run by Wesley Lowry. You know, so I mentor journalists in investigative reporting techniques and in December actually helped write one of the stories because it was a little bit more in depth, I think, than some of our you know interns could do on their own. So I actually got involved in the reporting and the writing of that story. So the bottom line is this position, you know, my position as a professor of journalism, accountability and democracy is really a position that allows me to operate as both a practitioner of journalism and as a scholar. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to be able to be in a role where, you know, I can do both. And this book Hedged is, you know, the culmination of being able to use, you know, that training in investigative reporting and being able to tell stories based on records and based on interviews, because the book is based on extensive records, but also 124 interviews that I conducted over, you know, several months, you know, but it also tries to add to the literature is what we would call it in scholarship, you know, tries to add to to the scholarly literature for, for journalism history by, you know, saying that we're in this period of what I call the private investment era. So when you assume this, this new role, what year was that? I mean, was that in response to something that was going on in the world? I started at American in the fall of 2013, but this new position I took in the fall of 2020. So I actually, I think I accepted the job just a week or so before COVID hit. So that was my memory of it. it was, you know, it was like the before times. And then so I you know, started this position in the fall of 2020. So really this book, you know, was written in the worst of COVID and, you know, in this small room that I had that I transformed into an office while my daughter, like many people, you know, had probably, we created a pod with two of our friends, families in the neighborhood. And so one day a week, you know, these three girls, eight-year-old girls were in the basement, you know, and I think I hung up a map of the United States and put a globe in the corner and hoped for the best, you know, just kind of hoped that they would learn long division while I was, you know, upstairs trying to write this book and teach classes online. And I don't advise that. That's my unsolicited advice for any scholars if there's another pandemic. But, you know, I think that the response of the position, you know, the position was created by American University or by the School of Communication was in response, I think, to this historical point where we are, which is some have called both journalism and democracy at this you know, kind of inflection point. Some have used the term crisis. So I think that, you know, my role is to try to examine these issues of journalism, media, and democracy and, and try to have a better understanding. Now, my area of expertise is local journalism, which I don't think has gotten a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of respect, that's not fair, but, you know, everybody, the time I was at Columbia Journalism School, for years, you know, everybody wanted to be a national reporter or a political reporter. But, you know, I think there's a lot of value in local journalism and there's a lot of value in the study of local journalism. A lot of the work of democracy gets done in school board meetings, in city council rooms, in county commissions, in planning and zoning rooms, you know, in small towns and communities 
everywhere in the United States. And that is a, you know, the coverage of those issues and events is disappearing at alarming rates in the United States. Yeah, I've talked about this before on the podcast. I work at Patch.com. I'm, I'm a local editor. You know, I go to those meetings. You know, I went to a legislative committee meeting and not the regular board of supervisors meeting. And everybody was looking at me like, what are you here for? Because they don't see reporters. And then the other side of that is, since I started working there in 2019, more people have come up to me to say thank you for what I'm doing because they recognize, well, I don't know if they, they appreciate the work I'm doing. I'm not sure how aware they are that the reason, you know, they're connecting with that is because there's nothing else going on. There are only a handful of reporters covering those types of stories in Northern Virginia. So on the one hand, it's nice to hear the, you know, the thank you. But on the other hand, you know, every time that's said, I think that there's a reason for that. The fact that someone is saying thank you to you, I would say is, is an incredible moment. And I think that that is correlated to trust. I think if you ask that person how they feel, do they trust media? I think that that person would probably have a higher trust in media because they're like, wait, didn't I see that guy, the guy with the mustache, right? They're like, wait, I know when news organizations disengage from a local, you know, at the local level, when you never meet a reporter, I mean, that would be my hypothesis. And I think that there's some work that can be done at the local level. But the other thing that I would say to you is now imagine that Michael O'Connell is not with Patch.com at that meeting. I think that there's been some really interesting research, you know, on these pink slime outlets. What is taking the place of newspapers when they disappear from communities? Chevron operates something called the Richmond Standard in California, and it's run by a person who calls himself a journalist who's actually a PR person. If you go to the site, it looks just like a local news outlet, and you know it's run and funded by Chevron. So if there were you know, any kind of environmental issue, any kind of refinery accident. I mean, imagine any reporting, any kind of critical reporting on that community's issues. So, and that's the concern. And in the book's conclusion, I really try to address this is, what is going to operate in the void when these news organizations are gone? And I think Patch.com and nonprofit news outlets are trying the best that they can but I think that just as much positive is trying to fill the void. We also have some pretty bad actors that are also trying to fill the void, which are actual threats to truthful, honest information. And that's a concern as well. So anyway, let's get back to your book. I imagine that what we're kind of talking about hedged addresses a lot of that. What was your starting thesis? Well, my starting thesis actually changed as I was, you know, so really the book was an evolution. So I would love to tell you that I sat down on the first day of, you know, this is the day I'm going to write the book. And, you know, there was a Word document open and it said like the book. And I just sat down and was ready to write about hedge funds. But that wasn't what happened. You know, I had done an interview with the NBC News Think program after a pretty substantial FCC vote. And the journalist had asked me, you know, something, a question about layoffs and, well, how did I really know? What was my evidence? And, you know, at that point, I this was back at the end of 2017. 
you know, and I thought to myself, well, God, you know, theoretically, I have a pretty solid foundation for why these layoffs are really terrible. But what is my evidence? And I started early in 2018, even before I had this job that I'm in now, I kind of started compiling and looking at major newspaper chains that were publicly traded. I started looking at layoffs. I started looking at their kind of consolidation over the years. And, you know, that took several months and was starting to kind of examine these issues. And the issue that I kept, you know, kind of coming back to in talking to friends, you know, many of whom had risen into leadership roles at some of these chains that I was studying was I was looking at Gannett or I was looking at Gatehouse, you know, I was looking at McClatchy. But what was clear to me is that the real story was the level above. It was the investment firms. It wasn't Media News Group. It was Alden Global Capital. It wasn't Gatehouse. It was Fortress Investment Group. You know, it wasn't Gannett. It was the private investment funds that were the major institutional investors. So that was kind of the starting point for really the writing, you know, but it was really months of reading and trying to figure out, like, what am I really trying to say? You know, and once I was had figured out that these institutional investors were going to be the focus of the book, then it was like, well, you know, am I going to write about a period of time? If I'm writing about a period of time, when did it start? And that's what led me to look at the Freedom Communications deal in 2003, which is when I really say this private investment era started. It sort of reminds me of what happened in Hollywood in the 1960s when Gulf Western bought either MGM or Paramount. And suddenly it was all about, you know, what can we make that's going to bring in a lot of money at once? And if we start to fail, then we're just going to sell off pieces of it. And we've seen that. We've seen, you know, newsrooms disappear gradually, you know, people getting laid off or, you know, all at once. And it's because there's <laughs> there's this disconnect between the uh, the owner and the the journalist the journalists and their mission and so being dependent on i mean journalism you know large corporate journalism has always been sort of reliant on the business side of it mm-hmm. but this is this is something different it's more valuable to them to sell off pieces rather than to try to invest in it that is the saddest reality is that when you have a private equity investor or a hedge fund owner that is saying, you know, well, you know, our ad rates might be down so we can lay off five people who used to cover Northern Virginia or would cover school issues. So the saddest reality is that, okay, once those layoffs are gone, okay, so they're not going to be able to, you know, boost profits. What they're looking at is, well, let's not invest in robust coverage to try to bring back subscribers, to try to bring back more advertisers, to maybe diversify our revenue streams or innovate online or find new ways to draw in more people online or maybe find new new ways of drawing in an audience through social media. Let's sell off the buildings. Let's get rid of the printing press. Where else do we own? You know, we used to deliver, maybe we had trucks, right? So let's get rid of those, right? Is that everything becomes just a line item. And it's just a sad reality that it's just 
journalism, news is just another widget as if they were selling sneakers or, you know, milk cartons. It's just another thing. It has no connection whatsoever to a community's information needs. It really is the saddest thing to see these investment firms just treat it as just items on a balance sheet. Have you looked at things like, you know, when you know, I remember when Jeff Bezos bought or took over the Washington Post 10 or so years ago. On the one hand, there were people who were really concerned about it, but then there's other people who were going, oh, well, maybe this is the model. Maybe this is the thing that's going to save journalism or pay for it. We just need to go find somebody rich. If they're, they're interested, if they, you know, don't see anything wrong with it, and maybe, you know, occasionally, oh, we did something really great. Well, that's great. But once that value changes, then we sort of enter this realm. Now, let's go back to the point that you started to examine. 2003 is a notable year because Freedom Communications, which was at the time, I believe, the 12th largest newspaper chain, it was privately owned by the descendants of R.C. Hoyles. And I interviewed Tim Hoyles, who was his grandson, and they were looking to sell off. So the Freedom Communications chain went up for sale. And what happened in 2003 is that they struck a deal that ultimately closed in 2004. They sold 40% of that chain, which included the Orange County Register, a number of newspapers, and a number of television stations, very profitable. They sold 40% of that chain to private equity firms. Blackstone, which is I mean, one of the largest private equity firms in America and Providence Equity Partners. So what I say is really that was the canary in the coal mine because Freedom declares bankruptcy not long after, even though they had 15 percent profit margins right after that. But private equity, it's never enough, right? Nothing seems to be enough for them. So when you look through the bankruptcy court records, which I was able to do, you start to see how between 2003 and 2008, how that pressure from the private equity firms putting pressure for profit starts to mean cuts, layoffs, and it starts to mean, you know, bad news for the, the newspapers, the news organizations in that chain. So essentially what happens is that the parts of freedom end up in Alden Global Capital's portfolio. They end up in hedge fund portfolios eventually. And, you know, what I say is in 2003, what happened, that was a canary in the coal mine, kind of opened the floodgates for what was possible for private equity to get in to the news business, which was to just get in and start liquidating and just, you know, sucking whatever was, you know, whatever was left and that quality would not mean anything. Was there any change in the regulations that maybe made this possible or, or made it easier? So at that time, no. So I'm trying to think of what FCC changes came, and those really weren't until the major one was in 2017, changes to newspaper and television cross-ownership rules. I think that was the big one, and that was the one that ultimately makes its way to the Supreme Court even though you had media advocates trying to fight that rule, saying that these are guardrails that we need. You know, we can't be in a place where we have one owner, you know, in control of a community's news organization. Fascinating enough, broadcast companies used 
weakened newspapers as a defense for why they should be able to consolidate. So you had hedge funds that owned newspapers that also invested in these television companies saying, well, weakened newspapers are why we should be able to take the guardrails off of any regulatory system put in place on ownership restrictions. I mean, it's laughable, but Supreme Court wasn't swayed. It was a unanimous decision in favor of the FCC. So here we are. So here we are. So what are the ramifications of this for, you know, the journalism industry, but also for democracy in America? Well, since I've finished the book, I think that there has been a positive development in that major philanthropic organizations are now considering the local news crisis a democratic crisis. And in September, you had the MacArthur Foundation with the Knight Foundation and 20 other philanthropies announce a $500 million initiative over the next five years to support news organizations and, you know, including the National Trust for Local News to rebuild and reinvent local news. And I think that that is one of the most positive developments, you know, the phoenix rising from these ashes. But certainly, I have spent enough time studying the destruction to say that I hope that what's been lost in this 20-year period, especially in the last five years, which is really, it feels like exponential devastation in terms of layoffs, a decline in trust, and power that's been gained by these firms. So what I hope is that, you know, what's been lost can be rebuilt. You know, I don't want to seem too, you know, I hope that it works. As I said, I've worked with a nonprofit newsroom, and I think that collaboration between nonprofit newsrooms is certainly a very positive development. You know, sharing resources. The Institute for Nonprofit News is is a wonderful resource. We've had public radio stations that have existed for years. And, you know, you mentioned Patch, online sources of, you know, digital sources of news. But, you know, that's a very fragmented audience. And I think one of the things that is, you know, something that I think is really interesting is in terms of that fragmented media audience or in that fragmented news audience, does it put the kind of pressure on politicians that you had in the heyday of news organizations that really led to change? And that's one of the things that, you know, I'm interested in examining in the future. Because it used to be that, you know, you could put pressure on officials with your investigative work too. They couldn't turn away. But now, if everybody is reading 25 different sources, does it put the same level of pressure? And that's a question that I have. I don't know. This is something I've been kind of wrestling with since like the beginning of last, or the middle of last year. I was at some event and I was talking to journalism educators. You know, I started talking about, you know, we've had people on our podcast who, you know, they're starting a hyper-local online newsletter to cover Phoenix or, you know, they're going to be covering the black community in a particular area and everything. And then a person came back at me and said, but you've got all these different voices coming at people and people long for the three network system or the large daily newspaper where you could have a ton of different types of stories and content appealing to lots of different people. So then there's this sort of threat to community that each 
community may have its own successful or is able to support something that, that addresses their needs and provides them the information, but it doesn't necessarily provide a way of entry to people who aren't in that community. And, you know, one of the nice things about the older models, one of the nice things, I'm not going to say there are a lot of them, was that you would sometimes read a story that you wouldn't normally read because it just happened to be in the, the newspaper that you buy for the sports section or whatever. Or the same thing with the TV show. If you've got three networks, you, you just choose the one that that you choose. And so it's almost like having too much choice is bad. <laughs> I don't know if that's the thesis, but... Listen, the other thing that's happening, which I think, you know, hasn't, you know, maybe gotten enough attention is, so since the book has finished, you know, I visited several cities. So I've been to Colorado, I've been to Maine, I've been to Louisiana, and just visiting different newsroom leaders and publishers and talking to them about what's working and some of the challenges of sustainability, you know, trying to figure out, like throwing the spaghetti out the wall and seeing what's going to stick. And, you know, I think one of the things that's and this was before the philanthropic announcement was made, these visits were done. But one of the things that's happening is there's now a fight over philanthropic funding in many of these communities. If you were the only nonprofit newsroom in town and you were getting, you know, a pretty decent share of funding from, you know, a local family foundation, you know, that was your revenue stream, a pretty guaranteed revenue stream for you. But now that there are two or three nonprofit outlets and even for-profit outlets that are independent for-profit outlets that are competing for that revenue. Now, you're not just the only person in town, but there are four or five outlets that might be trying to get that same funding. So now you're not just competing for audience, but you're competing for funding. And that is creating some real tension in some cities and some you know towns. And I don't know how you necessarily reconcile that but, you know, in some places it's, you know, the bright, shiny new object is getting a lot of attention, but the, some of the legacy smaller independents and legacy nonprofits leaders are saying like, hey, we've been here for a decade and why aren't you paying attention to us anymore? A few years ago, a large foundation that supported a lot of journalists and news outlets, people began looking at where their money came 100 years ago and making that sort of judgment and how, you know, when you do, you know, sort of enter that model, you take on whatever the perception of the foundation, the, the perception of the nonprofit, somebody might say, well, that nonprofit only covers right-wing issues or libertarian issues. Or Do you see that as, as a growing concern? Do I see the political bias of the funder as a growing concern? Is that what you mean? And I don't even necessarily mean it's an active thing by the funder. It may be part of their history. It may be just that's how people perceive them. And so by taking being funded by whatever foundation, that then we're, we're sort of <laughs> drifting into the trust conversation. Is like, you know, how do you trust? Well, maybe that's the question I should ask. Do you think that having charities support local news, do you think that that would help people to trust a news outlet more because they would see that, you know, it's a nonprofit. It's not necessarily a business that's going to be making business decisions and trying to sell you something. I think I have a, a multi-part answer and I'll try not to go too far, which is... That's okay. I think that we as journalism watchers and journalism, you know, producers and journalism scholars... I think that we know so much about these issues because we read about them, we live them. 
you know, I think about, you know, my father, who's a retired teamster, or my stepmother, who's a retired teacher. I think about them, like, how much do they really know about the news that they consume, about who owns it, about who provides it, and do they really care? These are the folks that I think about. These are college-educated people who are these real concerns for them And I think sometimes we overestimate how much people know about ownership or even would care about ownership. They're only seeing the label on the can. They don't necessarily care where it came from. Correct. And whether it's from the Koch brothers or whether it's from the Murdoch son who has gone rogue, they don't know that is inconsequential to them, right? Now, that being said, That being said, if you start to, and I think your question is a really interesting one, in that if it becomes something that they're, if it's a charity or an organization that they have a really strong point of view, a really strong balance, right? What if they were, you know, an organization that they have a really strong tie to, a community group that they've long been interested in or invested in, and that is meaningful, they trust them, you know, and they partner with that community group, does that help boost trust? That's a really interesting question. You know, in New Orleans, for example, there's a family foundation that specifically is funding the advocates' work on climate initiatives. So it would be really interesting to do a survey or to, you know, talk to folks in New Orleans about how they feel about understanding, number one, the advocates' coverage of climate issues and understanding that it's funded by the fan, you know, that one specific family foundation. I mean, I think that would be a really just an interesting perspective. So I think, you know, again, there are so many layers here, but I think your question and your point is is a good one. And I think this is, again, as a researcher, this is where I would say we need more research to help make better decisions and help practitioners make better decisions. That's what I would say. Yeah. One of the things that you said, and I'm going to interpret this <laughs> it this way, is that journalists sometimes spend a little too much time looking at the wrong things, I think. Or they look at the easy things or they, oh, this is a thing I need to fix. I need to reach out to this community better, but they don't necessarily look at it in a big picture. To your point, I think, you know, readers... Readers don't really care that they get the news. If they want to get news, they, you know, where can they go? Maybe it's not a news site or a, a TV station. Maybe it's like a blog that they follow or an influencer, <laughs> Taylor Swift. I don't know. These are interesting times. So are you, you know, having written this book, are you, are you hopeful? I mean, are you concerned or do you see a future where journalism is just going to die and democracy along with it? Wow. Thanks for the easy question, Michael. All right. right. Well, yeah, I'll sum it up. Can you please tell me how to fix journalism? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Right. What do I have about 30 seconds for that answer? No, Yeah, that's um, okay. No. If we had been doing this interview in December, I think that, you know, maybe my answer would be a little bit different. Listen, January 2024 was a grueling month for layoffs and buyouts at the Washington Post owned by, you know, one of the richest people in the world. The, you know, the Washington Post losing, you know, hemorrhaging money, but, you know, we don't have access to those documents. So they can say it's losing all the money that it is, and we just have to take them at their word because 
we don't have access to any of those records because it's not publicly traded. But it just seems to me, I'm like, that seems like an awful lot of money, you know, to be losing, right? So you've got the LA Times owned by another billionaire, right, where you had more than 100 layoffs there. You know, so you mentioned earlier that it seemed like when Jeff Bezos a decade ago bought the Washington Post, like this billionaire rich guy model was going to be it. That for me, I can tell you, I knew that was never going to be the right model because I can tell you from my, this is where my academic brain is going to come in, that we need to be able to separate journalism from the market. And, you know, there's a scholar at the University of Pennsylvania, Victor Picard, who writes on this issue much more, you know, eloquently than than I do. And I actually saw him at a conference several months ago, just a few months ago. And I, I said to him, you know, as a former journalist, I always believed very strongly in independence and independence from. But really, have we really had independence when we were always relying on on advertising anyway? So, you know, and I said to Victor, like, I'm coming over to your to your side. I strongly believe that he's right. You know, is journalism dying? Is it dead? No, but I think that we have got to disentangle journalism from the market because billionaires have shown us in the last 20 years and they've shown us specifically in the last month that they care not about what is going to happen to journalism and to journalists who are people, right? I mean, you had Apollo's co-founder, the billionaire co-founder of private equity firm Apollo, and Apollo financed the Gannett Gatehouse merger in 2019. He's also the owner of the Washington Commanders football team, right? So he financed part of, was a backer of the Messenger news site, right? And the messenger just unceremoniously shut down, didn't even allow its reporters the chance to collect their work off of the website, left them without health insurance and without severance. I mean, that is egregious. So I would say to you, my number one issue is get billionaires away from news, which is supposed to work on behalf of average citizens in a democracy. So I think we've got to be looking at solutions that whether or not that's the expansion of, you know, some kind of corporation for public broadcasting, you know, that addresses, you know, a digital environment, which I'm smart enough to be able to tell you will never happen in this polarized environment. But something has to happen because we need journalism in a democracy and it will not look the way it's looked for the last century but we we have to save it. We have to save journalism because otherwise you have government and industry run amok. And that is not, that is just not the future that we can look forward to. No, it may be the one we deserve <laughs> for what we've done. We can go on for this about another hour because I was just thinking the, the parallel discussion to this is labor organization. Does that factor? And we could talk another 30 minutes about that. But I think this is enough. Margot Suska wrote the book Hedged. And what's the rest of it say? Hedged? How private investment funds helped destroy American newspapers and undermine democracy. Yeah. I think we may have given away the ending, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. Margot, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Okay. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. 
You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>